I know we just prayed, but if you'd pray with me, um, thank you. God, pray that you would just let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bob Mueller, and uh, my wife and son and I have been going to Wheatland for about the last six or so years. Um, I, for about the last seven years, I've been the junior Bible teacher at Trinity Academy, and before that, I was a lawyer for about 20 years, and I'm honored to be able to preach today. I'm honored to be able to stand in for Nate, who was standing in for Paul, so I guess that makes me the C team, um, so that's great, and I have to say I'm really kind of nervous because every other time I've preached, I've always gotten to pick the topic. And this time it was kind of given to me, and, and I was talking to my friend Richard Stevens this week, and I said, I'm really nervous about this because um, I actually, like before I could just sort of take something I'd taught before and just sort of roll out of bed and come here and do it, and now I've actually had to, to really pull this together and read through Scott McKnight's book, but it actually was a great, great experience. I would say the, the process of preparing for this and really diving deeply into Scott McKnight's book has just, it's, it's been really helpful for me. Uh, and so this is the second part of a sermon series that Nate started last week on Scott McKnight's book from about uh, uh, 10 years ago called The King Jesus Gospel. And don't worry if you missed last week, I will hopefully fill you in on what you need to know. And for those of you who were here last week, I hope you all remember that, that Nathan distinctly said that I will just do a satisfactory job. So that's what I'm shooting for is satisfactory. Um, so I wanted to do a quick summary of Scott McKnight's book, and I actually was able to summarize the book on one slide. So if you would go. Um, this is a great summary of Scott McKnight's book. Um, this is, um, and I should say, I use a lot of memes when I teach, but I've purposely not used memes when I've preached here because I want this to be more serious and solemn, but I just kept thinking about it the last couple of weeks and I realized I have to use this meme because it's just, that is what this book is about. Um, the, the main theme of Scott McKnight's book is that Christians, especially evangelical Christians, have been using a mistaken definition of the gospel. That the definition we have is not necessarily wrong, just incomplete, and incomplete in some kind of key ways. That we have focused on the, I mean, not we meaning Wheatland, just we meaning evangelical Christianity, um, has really focused on the idea of personal salvation as the gospel. Uh, I had a, a, a former pastor who used to say, you, you know, you fit the gospel on one hand, Jesus died for my sins. And then I would say, yeah, and he rose from the dead. He said, all right, you could add two fists, but you could do it all on, on two hands. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. That's it. And what Scott, the point that Scott McKnight makes, and I think he makes a compelling point, is that we have turned the gospel into something that it's not in the Bible, that we are trying to get people to make a decision about what they believe rather than inviting them in to be part of a story and inviting them to a new way of life. And what McKnight argues is that this has caused our whole approach 
to evangelism and discipleship to just be off. And so, Harrison, if you could go to the next slide. Thank you. Um, so th these diagrams are from Scott McKnight's book, and what he argues is we have gone from a, a gospel-based culture to a salvation-based culture within the church. And so the diagram on the, the right, I, I, um, I believe, is the one that, sorry, I guess it would be your left, is the one that Nate had up last week, and that's, this is from the book, and this is what the Bible presents, that the foundation of the gospel is the Old Testament, and especially the story of Israel, and Jesus' story is the fulfillment of that story, and growing out of that, growing out of the story of Jesus is the plan of salvation for each of us, and then finally, at the top of that is the method of persuading people to join, that each part is a foundation for the part on top, and it builds. And then the, the diagram on the other side, on your right, is what we have sort of turned it into, that the method of persuasion and the plan of salvation have become all important, and they've, they've been crushing the story of Jesus, and, and even uh, the story of the Old Testament as well, that the Old Testament almost becomes completely unnecessary. And the story of G Jesus is even minimized. And what McKnight argues is that's too weak of a foundation to stand, and that this, this distortion has shaped our, our whole culture within the church. Um, and so the topic I'm speaking on today, the assignment I was given, and I hope I do a good job, is to talk about the story of Israel and how the story of Israel in the Old Testament is part of the gospel and how Jesus fulfills that. And I wanted to talk just a little bit at the outset about why this matters, because I think that's a, a fair question. Um, and, you know, I have a confession to make. I kind of dislike it when or there's just something within me that always reacts a little bit when a theologian comes along and tells me how I need to think about God or how I need to think about the Bible. And I know a lot of times they're right, and they, they give me a necessary correction to how I'm thinking about things, but there's something within me that just reacts to that. It just seems presumptuous, and what I really hate, and maybe this is my pet peeve, is I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, and all we tell high school kids all the time is make your faith your own. You've got to make your faith your own, and I love it when, like a youth pastor, someone comes along and says, yeah, but, but by the way, you need to think about God in exactly this way. And if you don't think about it this way, you're wrong. Um, I, I think that's problematic. But I don't think McKnight is doing that. I don't think he's trying to necessarily tell us how, how to think. He's just pointing out a, a few things. He's pointing out that modern Christians, especially evangelicals, just haven't been using this word gospel in the way it's used in the Bible by Jesus and Peter and Paul and others. And for, so part of that is he's reminding us that words matter. And as I was putting this together, I was reminded of a tweet that made the rounds several months ago. Uh, and it was from someone who is, who is a critic of the, of the church. And I think in a lot of ways, their criticisms are very good. But this tweet said, I'm a Christian, and I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, and I do whatever I please. And so, of course, people had a field day with this. There were responses like, I'm a vegan, and I only eat beef, pork, and chicken. Um, <laughs> I'm a circle, and I have four corners and four sides. And, of course, because it's Twitter, a lot of the responses were really hateful. 
but, but many of them pointed out the uselessness of trying to destroy the meaning of a word, that that probably wasn't all that helpful to what the person was trying to accomplish. And so that's part of what McKnight's saying is, look, the word gospel has a meaning in the Bible, and we've strayed from that meaning. But, but even trying to go beyond that, why does this matter? Uh, why does this book warrant a sermon series in you know, four or five weeks? What is the relevance to each of us in our daily lives and in our spiritual walk? And I mean, Nate and I had a conversation about this early on where I, I raised this question myself when I first started reading Scott McKnight's book. Um, why does any of this matter? The, the whole point is to be saved, right? I mean, I will tell you this is a huge issue for me. I really don't want to stop existing. And it would really be nice if my existence in eternity was something pleasant. And so that, to me, has always been kind of the selfishly, self-centeredly, the most important part. But when we distill it down to just our salvation, we make the gospel all about us. It becomes this individualistic thing. And the gospel isn't just about us and our continued existence. It, it's this grand story in which we get to play a part. And the story happens to end very well for us, and that's a great thing, but it forces us to focus on other things, things outside ourselves, like the story of Israel and how Jesus completed the story of Israel. Um, and so the, the, the Bible and the gospel are obviously about God, but even when the story comes down and focuses on people and events on earth, we, meaning non-Gentiles, most of or sorry, Gentiles, most of us are not Jewish, um, we are not the primary players. We're not the center of that story. That story is primarily about the Jewish people and what happens uh, to them and to their nation. Um, we're the adopted, as we, meaning as Gentiles, we're adopted children. We're not the natural ones. Um, we aren't the natural branches. We're the ones that have been grafted in. At one point, Jesus even refers to feeding the children before the dogs get to eat. And the children are the children of Israel and, and Gentiles are the dogs. Um, Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he calls himself that in Romans, a few verses later in Romans 11, he says, one of the main purposes of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God is to make Israel jealous so that, so that they will be enticed in. And so I think, I just wanted to pause before I jumped into this, say I think it's important, especially maybe for American Christians to hear this message. Um, that, so my apologies to any Mormons in the crowd, but I don't think Jesus ever came to North America. And I think his, his earthly ministry, ministry was focused elsewhere. And uh, if you could go to the next slide, please. Um, McKnight has this great section of the book where he talks about this. And he acknowledges the importance of each of our personal salvation, but there's more to the story. So he writes, we dare not minimize our deadness and need of new life in the new creation, but we would be mistaken to reduce these themes to nothing more than individualism. I would urge us to think much more deeply about the problem that the gospel resolved. If the story of Israel finds its completion in the story of Jesus, and if that is the gospel, we must find the problem within the fabric and contours of Israel's story and not just in my needs and my story. Uh, and I thought that some, summed up this point well. S several years ago, I was having a conversation with my father about the Bible, and he asked me this specific question. He says, 
he just was, was talking about the whole Bible and the Old versus New Testaments, and he just asked, why would God pick one people like that in the Old Testament? What makes them so special? And, and why do I need to care about it? And I think those are fair challenges. And I would just say the fact is there is something special about Israel. Even if you're not a Christian, you can't deny how incredible it is that after almost 2,000 year uh, diaspora, the Jewish people have remained this clearly defined people group. It's incredible that this little patch of land is still so incredibly important geopolitically. And the Bible doesn't give a clear answer to the why question. In, I mean, in, in several places, it certainly gives some strong hints. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says he chose this people simply because he loved them. He says, you weren't the most numerous. I just loved you. Um, so I would say before I move in, why this book matters and why my little piece tonight matters is that it reminds us, especially me, that it's not about us. Um, we aren't even the main players. This isn't about me getting fire insurance. It's about this grand story in which you and I are allowed to play a part, and that's, that's better. Um, it includes the fire insurance part, but it also includes so much more. So, okay, in Wheatland fashion, that is my introduction. Um, uh, so if you could go on, please, Harrison. Um, so, okay, so obviously the gospel can't include the entire Old Testament with all the details on laws and kings and prophets, but the gospel does include the main storyline of the Old Testament put in the context of the kingship of Jesus. So specifically, trying to, to narrow this down, a lot of the story is about God's desire to have icons or image bearers on earth, people who will bear his image and rule over the rest of creation on his behalf. And the story in the Old Testament is God selecting a person or group to be his icons, and they mess up. They try to usurp his authority, and they, and they also fall into other sins. They don't rule creation well. They don't bear God's image well. And the painting on the slide depicts the scene from Luke where the risen Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and describing how he fulfilled everything that was said in the Old Testament. And I think that's a, a, a great passage for this. So it all started with, with Adam and Eve as God's icons in the garden, which was to be God's temple on earth. And they listened to the serpent and tried to usurp God's authority, so he cast them out. He gave their immediate descendants the chance to be icons, but they tried to usurp God's power even worse, and that culminated in the Tower of Babel. So God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his icons, to bear his image and to steward his creation, and this responsibility also included specifically being a blessing to other nations. And at times they did this well, and at other times they acted as usurpers, both as a nation and as individuals. And then they got the law. The purpose of the law was to teach them about who God is, who they are, and to give them a way to live as a nation of God's icons. He also sent prophets to tell them what would happen to the nations that oppressed them and to warn them about what would happen to them if they didn't live in accordance with God's rule, if they tried to usurp, but they kept usurping. Like Adam and Eve, they were unable to be God's icons. And then they asked for a king, and that was part of their usurpation. They wanted to be like other nations and be powerful. And in the Old Testament reading for today that Buffy did, 
you see God actually taking their prideful, disobedient desires and sort of curving them in a positive direction. He chooses a king who is someone who is after his own heart, who could rule in a way that God wanted. But he also became a usurper and messed up the kingly reign. And then he passed on the throne to somebody who messed it up even more. And so McKnight concludes from all of this, within a few centuries, Israel had seemingly forgotten the assignment God had given to Adam and Eve, the assignment that they were a priestly kingdom designed to bless the world. After years of deafening silence, God moved into the final plan and suddenly broke into history with someone who would rule rightly and not as a usurper. So Jesus is the Messiah who will rule over and save Israel and bless all nations. He's also the perfect icon of God. Um, The assignment that God gave to Adam and then Abraham and then the nation of Israel and its leaders was transferred to Jesus who fulfilled it perfectly without being a usurper. And it says this in several places, probably the clearest is in Colossians 1, where Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then the final point, the final step, is that Jesus then, when he leaves, we we get the Holy Spirit and he gives us the church. He basically hands back this assignment that he has now executed perfectly to his church. And you see this in a number of places. One place it's fairly clear is Revelation. Um, This is from 5 and and a little bit from 20. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So we, the church, are called to be God's icons now. And a little bit more on that at the, at the end, but that, that's the situation we're in now. Um, so I want to just stop for a second. That's a lot. I want to give, because I used to be a lawyer, I want to give a little bit of support um, for his arguments for why he thinks that the Old Testament is part of the gospel. And this is made clear in a lot of different places in the Bible, as well as the overall arc of the story. And I don't want to just proof text, but here are a few passages. Uh, one, of, one of the clearest is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. So for Paul, the two main parts of the gospel, that Jesus was descended from David and was raised from the dead. Uh, at the beginning of Romans, in Paul's introduction, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David. <clears throat> you also see it in the birth narrative in Luke. Uh, like In the first couple of chapters of Luke, if you look at the song of Mary, the song of Zacharias, they... they um, they put his birth in the context of the salvation of Israel. When Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus to the temple, they encounter Simeon and Anna, and both of those were people who were waiting to see the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, and they both confirm that they've now seen that fulfillment in Jesus. In Luke 4, when Jesus goes to the synagogue, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and then he says, it's fulfilled in him. So all of these and many, many others address this. I wanted to just take a second and address one of my favorite passages. 
and one that is often cited by those who would be on the other side from McKnight, who would push more of the salvation-only approach, and that's John chapter 3, uh, the first part of that, that, the Jesus conversation with Nicodemus. Um, because that passage obviously says it's all about being born again. That's how you get into the kingdom of God. You're born anew. Um, so doesn't that mean that that's what the gospel is? It's just about being born again and getting saved. And the interesting thing is if you read that passage, you realize Jesus never calls that the gospel nor does the writer of that gospel, John. Uh, John. Um, you see nowhere in that passage do they say that individual salvation equals the gospel. Um, also, even this passage, which is just about salvation, goes back to the Old Testament for context. Jesus, in speaking about his mission, says that he compares him being lifted up on the cross to Moses lifting up the brass serpent in the wilderness, which is a reference to the, in the book of Numbers when a number of Jews in the desert are bitten by snakes and God tells Moses to make a brass snake and lift it up and those who look on it are healed. Um, so even Jesus, in talking about personal salvation, goes back to the Old Testament to put it into context. Um, I don't want to do any more on that. I would, just, I would urge you to read the book if you're interested. Um, it's a great book. He is... I will say he is a very careful New Testament scholar, and he makes a very compelling case that the gospel does include this Old Testament story arc. Um, it, I, I wanted to, to uh, in conclusion, talk a little bit about application, and that's a really hard thing to do because this is only the second in a longer series. Nate is going to wrap all this up in a few weeks. And then he's going to tell all of us how we should now approach evangelism and do evangelism. So he's going to solve all the problems that McKnight raises. Nate is going to solve in a few weeks. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, but one easy point of application is we all need to keep reading our Bibles, both Old and New Testament. And we need to be f familiar with the stories in the Old Testament because it looks like that's part of the gospel. Um, and I just wanted to say a couple things about that. Uh, Harrison, if you could go on more. Um, at the outset, putting the Old Testament into the gospel is kind of problematic because the Old Testament has some really difficult passages. Um, there are places where Old Testament heroes like Abraham and, and David, who Buffy read about, do horrible things. Uh, there are laws that are presented that seem kind of crazy, like some of the food laws. Some of the punishments for violating the law seem pretty, pretty severe. Um, and these and other problems have led many pastors to want to minimize the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm picking on Andy Stanley. I could pick on a lot of other people, but this is a statement that, um, if you know Charles Stanley, this is his, his son Andy. He made, Andy made this in a sermon several years ago. He said, we, Peter, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Um, uh, Greg Boyd also wrote a book, uh, sort of putting the Old Testament, minimizing the effect of the Old Testament a bit. Rob Bell has, has uh, written on this and others. And so McKnight is kind of running against the grain. He doesn't want to unhitch the Old Testament. He wants to hitch it up more firmly and actually say that it's part of the gospel. And it's beyond the scope of this sermon or this whole sermon series, I think, to address this issue of Old Testament ethics and the things that led 
Andy Stanley to say that. Um, I, I preached on that here at Wheatland actually almost exactly five years ago, and it, it's an enormous subject. We spend about a week on it in my, in my apologetics class. But I will say that a lot of these difficulties with the Old Testament actually tie in to the overall theme of McKnight's expanded gospel. And he's written extensively on this in other places. He wrote a book in 2008 called The Blue Parakeet, which uh, deals with difficult passages in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We actually read it in Wheatland's book club a couple years ago. Um, and there's no time to go through his, his whole argument, but he argues that there are these passages in the Bible, many of them in the Old Testament, that he calls blue parakeets. We want to put them in cages and tame them. And what he writes about in his book is these stories, we need to let them out of their cages, that they're part of this story of the King Jesus gospel. Um, and we need to read the entire Bible, including these stories in this context. And so he lays out how a lot of these difficult Old Testament passages fit into this story of usurpation of God's authority, that Israel as a nation and individual leaders and people are constantly usurping God's authority and are broken icons. And so these stories show how God's icons are broken and the consequences of this brokenness. And McKnight's point, in the, again, in this other book, The Blue Parakeet, is that's not something to be avoided. That's the point. That's the point of the story. And obviously, this doesn't resolve all of the troubling passages in the Old Testament. Um, but McKnight's point and mine here is that we're not supposed to avoid these passages. We're supposed to read them and wrestle with them and deal with them as part of God's story. And if you want more on that, again, I would encourage you to, to also pick up his book, The Blue Parakeet. It gives you a great framework for making sense of a lot of these passages. Um, okay, that leads into my actual, actual final point. Um, early leaders of God's people like Abraham and David were broken icons. They often didn't reflect God's image and they often didn't rule his creation very well. And towards the end of the book, uh, the King Jesus Gospel, McKnight points out that even in this current era where the church and its members are God's icons, they're still imperfect and broken. Um, and Harrison, if you want to go one more, please. Thank you. And I've been thinking about this topic a lot lately. And if, if you follow the news about Christian scandals, um, there's been no shortage over the last few years. Um, and some of the examples I have up there on the slide, you have Bill Hybels at Willow Bend, Carl Lentz at Hillsong Church, uh, John Ortberg, the, the scandals involving Connecticut camps. And I have to say that of all these, the one that hit home for me probably the hardest was the scandal involving Ravi Zacharias that, that came out after he passed away. Um, and that's the, the biggest picture there on your left side in the middle is, is Ravi. Um, he was someone who I really looked up to personally. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I discovered his sermons and books and I started listening to him all the time. And it's part of what made me want to go to seminary and in fact, the seminary I choose to attend uh, was his alma mater. And I actually got to meet him twice while I was there, including one time I spent a lot of time with him and his wife. And he seemed to be everything in person that he was in public. He was warm, humble, funny, self-deprecating. And so the scandal that came to light after he died has just been really hard to understand. Um, uh, on a more personal level, I recently uh, experienced the downfall of, of a colleague and good friend who also was kind of a Christian leader and role model. 
Um, and I will say that as I've struggled with some of these things, a lot of people have given me great advice. Um, don't put your trust in man, put it in God. Um, so yeah, that's, thanks. Um, got it. Uh, but it, it, this has made me think a lot about like someone like Ravi, who's, who, who did a lot in his life and then fe is fell, what should his legacy be? Um, he did so much that was monstrous, but I also can't deny the good that he did. And it makes me think about w what is his legacy? Um, if you ask me now, currently, just my gut feeling, I feel like his legacy is tarnished beyond redemption. I mean, that would be, if, if you ask me my opinion, that would be my opinion right now. But I don't know that that's God's answer. And I don't even know if that's the right question to ask. Um, I, I look at King David. King David also did monstrous things. He took Bathsheba as his wife. He had her husband killed. Um, one of his sons raped one of his daughters, and he didn't do anything about it. Um, the consequences to him personally and to his kingdom were awful. But in the final analysis, the Bible still calls him someone after God's own heart. And his lineage gave us Jesus. Jesus actually came through the lineage of this broken icon. And so you take this, you take all these other, other horrible stories in the Old Testament, um, all of McKnight's blue parakeet passages, and you look at what God did, he still fulfilled his promises to Israel and to the world by sending Jesus. All of these horrible stories in the Old Testament led to something wonderful that nobody could have foreseen. And I'm not standing up here and saying that Ravi Zacharias is some kind of King David, or that the Old Testament contains the secret to understanding all of these current scandals. Um, that slide is a mess. And um, in the face of those situations, I'll just say for me, it's hard to know what to think or what to do other than to just pray for the victims and ask God for guidance. Um, but when I look at all these horrible stories in the Old Testament and the wonderful way that God still worked through it all to fulfill his promise, it gives me hope. Um, it gives me hope in the face of today's horrible stories and in the face of my own brokenness. Um, so I guess I'll end with hope. Um, God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for saving me from my sins, for saving so many others from theirs. But I thank you that the gospel is more than that. It's more than even that great truth. I thank you that it's just this amazing story of broken icons and you working through all of it um, to fulfill your promises. I pray that your promises would be fulfilled today and that your will would be done through your church. Amen. Thank you.